welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip Podcast. I'm Pastor Hayden, and joined with me as every day, joined to the hip, Pastor Evan. Joined to your hip? We're not Siamese twins. No, but we're brothers. I know we're twins in Christ. I'm a literal person. Oh, okay. Hi, well, everyone. Here he is, just pain in my neck. Thorn, no, Thorn, no, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> At Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill that mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Pastor Evan, my wonderful co-worker in Christ, we are in the middle of a new series, Preparing for Jesus, and we are looking at Matthew 3, 7 through 12. Would you read that for us? Well, before I read, what is the title of the sermon? Preparing for Jesus. Part two. <laughs> Last week I actually had a title, and I had a title this week, but it, I just didn't. I didn't like it. We just came back from a conference, which it was did. really edifying. it was a great conference. Truth in love, recommend yep. it. It's all the one ambition are, was it the subtitle. One ambition. Founders Baptist Church in Houston. Great. Check out the uh, videos; they're great. All right, you gonna read the text? Yes, I will. Matthew three, beginning in verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers." Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, Pastor Hayden, that is pretty intense. It's pretty intense. So is the gospel pretty intense. That's right. The reality of our sin is pretty intense. So what is your pretty intense preaching point? <laughs> the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus inaugurates not only frees you from the coming wrath of God, but also empowers you to bear the necessary fruit that flows from genuine repentance. All right. Well, Pastor Hayden, what, as a church, what do we need to, I mean, we are our main preaching point right here, but what do we do with a passage like this that's so, the winnowing fork is going to separate the unquenchable yeah, fire? Yeah, that's good. Um, it's called good biblical interpretation, and it's called hermeneutics. And uh, it's the same thing that I have to do when I look at this text, is you have to look at the text and say, what is it saying? And then what is it saying about what it is saying? And so the point of this whole text, 7 through 12, is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's talking about... Uh, the coming judgment and how the Holy Spirit uh, is God's is 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 uh, the down payment that we're given that Jesus inaugurates that actually is our seal of deliverance from wrath, and how those who who do not have the Holy Spirit that that Jesus has not poured the Holy Spirit on are actually going to be separated unto destruction, and that's actually the whole point of of this text of the coming message of the gospel that will separate people uh, into two groups the wheat and the chaff, and one will be set apart to, unto God, and the other will be set apart unto destruction. And that's what's important, how you understand these kind of texts, is you say, what is the text saying, and what is it saying about what it's saying? Uh, in in uh, analytical words, or you would say, what is the subject and what is the complement? And it's important to understand those things, to understand what this text is saying, because yeah, when you read it, you're like, that said a whole lot of things, but you're able to, using good hermeneutics, to be able to look at it and say, oh, here's what it's saying, and here's how can we apply it. There's your hermeneutics lesson for today. 
All right. And what does hermeneutics mean? It is the study of how to interpret scripture. There you go. All right. Well, come as Bible Church. Pastor Hayden's first point for us, based on Matthew 7, was for us to expect God's coming judgment. Well, Pastor Hayden, we can easily just go right to the you know the nitty-gritty of the negative side of things. But as you challenge us as Christians to see the positive element of God's coming judgment. Usually when we mm-hmm. hear judgment, we go, Ugh! we you know, we kind of cringe, you know, cringe a little bit. But why as Christians can we think the coming judgment in a positive manner? Well, we should. We live in a culture where we're negative about the world in front of us, which there's a real reason for that. Uh, but in some way, we also feel negative about coming judgment. And in that sense, it's like, where's the hope of the Christian? If I can't be positive about what is going to happen, and I'm negative about what's happening right now, where where is the joy in, in my life as a Christian? And that's why the challenge, especially when you read texts like this, is to see the, the positive realities of the coming judgment of God. Uh, all throughout Scripture, you're going, you're going to see that the deliverance of God's people is almost always, I believe almost without exception, the deliverance of God's people is always accompanied with the judgment of the wicked. And the reality of that is like all the good things that you see in the Bible have always been accompanied with the punitive judgment of God on wickedness. But yet when we read scripture, we see so many joyful, encouraging sections that we will quote and that we will think about and that we will uh, remember or meditate on. Uh, but we need to remember that it's all throughout Scripture that we see both the punitive uh, consequences of God's coming judgment, but also the the deliverant and redemptive parts of the judgment of God. Well, we, it is important to remember to have joy because that is what the Bible describes. I mean, first mm-hmm. off, in Exodus, we're about to read this in our daily Bible reading in the Old Testament, when God judged Egypt in, in totality, finally at the Red Sea, what happens right after? A song of joy. Yeah. Of joy yeah. of yeah. deliverance. Saying, right. Praise you, Lord, for destroying your enemies. Right. And delivering it, your people. It's, because it is a joyful occasion. Yeah. It's always both. And you can see it throughout. I mean, if you think about even the prophets. Well, I was going to say even further, you think yeah. of the Psalms. Yep. Every, we love the Psalms. They talk about, oh, God, deliver me. But what is always paired with, for my enemies are crushing me. I'm going to be joyful when you deliver, deliver me, me and crush me. them. That's right. And so it's not because we're vengeful. No. But it's because we're joyful because God has delivered us from evil. Right. And the prophets do the same thing. They're always looking forward to the day when uh, the justice of God will will reign, and in the way that it reigns is also by judging the nations, judging the, the wicked. And so, in the same way, it's just that's that is that is the narrative of Scripture that you see that over and over and over again. And so, for us, you 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 ought to not just try to make yourself in some way see the good and the bad. No, 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 no. It is the good, and with the good, with the great good, with the eternal good, also comes a punitive reality of the judgment of God on the wicked people. Now, with that judgment, uh, we can see the negative side of God's judgment for the unbeliever. Now, why should we have a disposition for when we see an unbeliever to go beyond, oh, you're going to get what's coming to you, given there is scripture to say, hey, I'm going to trust in the Lord instead of taking vengeance to myself. Instead, I'm going to leave it to God. This is Romans 12, because the Lord is the avenger. But how? what kind of disposition should we have with the unbeliever who is incurring judgment upon themselves when we think of this, the coming judgment of God? Yeah, Ezekiel 33, 11 is really good. It says, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked 
but rather that they turn their ways and live. Like God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but it is called justice. It's perfect, calculated justice of God on the wickedness, on sin, on the very things that we turn our try to turn our eyes away from, the very thing that we hide our children from as much as we can is the evil in the world. And God is coming to pour out his perfect justice on all those situations. But God doesn't desire the death of the wicked. He is patient, wishing that all, or, or, or hoping that all would come to repentance. And so in that way that when we see people who are in sin, our desire should be as God. I don't, I don't take the pleasure in death of the wicked. I, I desire that all would come to repentance. I'm out preaching the gospel because I want the wicked, just like I was the wicked, to turn their ways and live. Well, speaking of that, that's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is point number two, understand the work of the Spirit. And I guess to keep this one short, because we can get down the rabbit trail, mm. what is your counsel to us as a church as we prepare to uh, prep for life groups on this topic? I know we have probably have a ton of questions, but what should we do? What's going to be important for you to understand is in a 50-minute sermon, you're never going to be able to uh, cover the breadth of the work of the Holy Spirit. And what has been tried to do and attempted in the sermon is to boil down the realities of the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to your sealed guarantee of salvation, and that is your salvation and the salvation experience that the Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee of, that as you turn, place your trust in Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sin, but also in Him, you were given the Holy Spirit in your salvation, and also the work of the Holy Spirit in your justification. That that means, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that you're being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, that you're being progressively sanctified as you're living your life and walking by the Spirit. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And so when it comes to the salvation and the sanctification of the believer, And thirdly, when it comes to the judgment that is coming, it's also a work of the Spirit, because it says in John 16 and verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's convicting the world concerning judgment. And so when it comes to these three errors, if you will keep your focus in these application questions on salvation, sanctification, and the coming judgment of uh, God, you're going to have a fruitful conversation in your life group and a fruitful time in your Uh, quiet time as you study through these questions. And I know that you may have a lot of questions and a lot of uh, other areas, which fine, you should feel the freedom to be able to ask those questions. Uh, But understand that when the scope of everything that we're talking about in this, uh, there, there may be more questions that you have that it would be smart for you to talk to your life group leader about uh, at a different time or, uh, or, or set another time for your group to get together and discuss more questions about the Holy Spirit. I think that would be awesome and wonderful. Uh, but I think in light of the conversation, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, especially in salvation, sanctification, and the coming judgment of God would be super helpful for you guys to stay within the framework of those things. Okay, well, your final point was um, tr- you know, trusting the Holy Spirit. Point number three, bear good fruit as a necessary byproduct of your faith and Again, we have many rabbit trails that we can go down, and I would encourage you, if you have more questions after your life group, you know, set, set aside time to meet again and talk through some of these questions. But Pastor Hayden, as a church, how can we help our, you know, how can we, I guess, counsel ourselves in a sense, how can we make sure that we're bearing fruit rather than just doing a couple good things every once in a while? Are you being nourished by the root that is Christ, and are you... Uh, are you someone who is abiding in uh, the vine that is Christ? If you are uh, 
uh, nourished by the root and abiding in the vine, you're going to, as a natural byproduct, produce good fruit. That is going to be your identity. You are grafted and made a part of the vine. You are nourished by the root because you're attached to the root. In the same way as my illustration about the hens, they're laying eggs because it comes from it comes from a hen. The hen as creating as a byproduct eggs for us to eat as as a part of its identity. In the same way, our identity is going to produce in us the good fruits that come with being a Christian. And is there work in that? Well, of course there is. I think when you look at the idea being nourished by the root, the root gives energy to the plant that it would produce. In the same way, uh, the vine gives energy to the buds that would produce fruit. In the same way, the, the hen gives energy uh, to produce the egg. It all takes energy. It all takes our work, but it's what's producing that in us and making that uh, uh, come out of us is the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's going to take energy to do that. It takes energy to do anything. Uh, but the reality of the matter is the work is the Spirit's. You're just producing what is already there. And then how, and what is a practical way for us to really examine our fruit? Because it, we might have people in our church that might start questioning, like, is this my fruit or God's fruit? Like, how can we examine what is God's fruit and what is my fruit? Yeah, I mean, Romans 7 talks about good fruit and bad fruit, bearing fruit for God or bearing fruit for death. I mean, we're all bearing fruit. And so when you look at your life, you have to ask, is this the kind of fruit that the Spirit produces? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, are we producing that? Or when we look at our lives, are we producing fruit for death? And it talks about in Galatians 5 what that kind of stuff is. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So if you can categorically fall into those areas as fruits of your life, then I do believe in, in a real way that you're bearing fruit for death. And you, you, you perhaps, according to Scripture, uh, do not have the Holy Spirit in you. And if we go back to what we were talking about Earlier, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't belong to Christ, according to Romans 8 9. Instead, we should uh, always examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. Am I bearing the fruit that comes uh, with being indwelt with the Holy Spirit? And, uh, and that's, of course, you if you're not a Christian. But perhaps, you know, you're one of those people, you're listening to this, that, uh, you know, you've been coming to a Bible teaching church for a while, and your life is starting to make sense. It looks like your, your life is starting to starting to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. You're starting to bear more fruit, and you have some bad fruit, uh, but you're being planted in good soil. Maybe you come from a background that doesn't teach the Bible, uh, and you are now in your understanding growing in such a way that shows the evidence of the Spirit of God working in you. Well, that is part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a real a group of people who are going to be at our church who have struggled with sin uh, and now being in discipleship and community, you're seeing real victory over a lot of the sin in your life as an outworking of the fruit of the Spirit that has been in you or from the Spirit that has been in you. And now that fruit of that is coming out of you because of the community that you have, which is very biblical. We talked about that in, uh, uh, in our sermon. Uh, and you're coming in here and you're seeing that. Well, it's, it's good to, to make sure that as you're thinking through that, Am I just showing good fruit because I'm uh, that I'm genuinely a Christian, or are there are a lot of people showing good fruit around me, and their fruit's kind of rubbing off on me, and 
Uh, I'm doing some good things, but I'm trying to show that I'm in. I'm trying to show that I'm in, but is it really, is it really the fruit of the spirit or is it just a, uh, fleeting, uh, temporary kind of fruit producing that doesn't last? Those things are good, helpful questions to examine your own salvation. All right. Well, speaking of good questions, a reminder, Compass, we have our application questions. And so be sure to do these um, well and thoroughly. And you know, let these be you know, devotional before you jump into your life group so mm-hmm. that this can be edifying for others to hear. Right. Pastor Hayden, is there a resource that maybe you've just read about maybe holiness that can help us? Yeah. There's a book I'm reading called The Whole in Our Holiness. We're actually going to most likely make it one of our pastor's picks in the bookstore over the next cycle of our uh, of our bookstore. It's by Kevin DeYoung. It's a very good book. It's very charitable, very helpful, encouraging, convicting, uh, and helping us look at the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us in a really, really good, uh, helpful uh, perspective. And so it's a really good book. I encourage you, uh, maybe just look out for it in our, our library over the next couple of weeks, and we'll have it uh, there for you. If not, you can always buy it on uh and wherever where books are found. <laughs> All right. Well, we are jumping into our daily Bible reading spotlight. And uh, this week we are looking at Matthew 16 through 19. We are moving through we Matthew. We are moving. All right. Well, take it away. All right. Well, Compass, again, resources. Get a good study Bible at the bookstore if you don't have one. And if you have one and you want something a little bit deeper, the Bible Knowledge Commentary is available. And if you want to go further than that, the Tyndale commentary set on the Gospel of Matthew is available at our bookstore to help you better understand the Gospel of Matthew as we go through it as a church and as we study it in our daily Bible reading. All right, well, Compass, buckle up. This is what's going to happen. Put me on half speed because I got to (laughs) go. I got to move. So um, with that being said, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 16 and get a quick overview as we dive in. I'm titling this DBR is, Who is Jesus and Who are His Children? Because that's essentially what we're going to find out about today and in this week. Matthew 16 uh, Jesus comes back into the area of the Jews, out of the Gentiles, and he comes back, and the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who Pastor Hayden explained in this sermon, so refer you back to that, they come to test him because they're asking, who is Jesus? Now they have a heart of evil to doing it, to test him, to trick him so they can kill him, but they're trying to figure out who is Jesus. And so Jesus says, you know what? The only thing that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And then he leaves. And he warns his disciples of their false teaching, saying, hey, beware of their teaching because it's going to look good, sound good, but it's going to be damaging. It's going to spread throughout your whole life. And damn you if you really believe it, meaning because it's legalism. It's saying your works merit salvation. But then right in the middle from verse 13 to verse 20 of Matthew 16, this is the middle of the book of the gospel of Matthew. And this is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is God with us. And so we got a nice little sandwich here in the beginning of Matthew. It's God promised to be with us and revealed that it's baby Jesus. And then Peter now confesses, yes, this is who you are. And then the end of Matthew 28, it's proved that God is with us and he will be with us until the end of the age. And that verse 16 is really that midpoint where we see in the literary makeup of the gospel of Matthew that you, when Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, I mean, that was the uh, the Son of the Living God, that's the, the culmination uh, of this really this 
climactic point in the text where Christ was promised in the birth, then right here he's affirmed through the disciples, and it moves throughout the narrative of Matthew as that being the center point of like, this is where we all have to land, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is Matthew's thesis lived out, that you and I would believe, just as Peter believed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who brings forgiveness of sins. And when you look at verse 18, this is the promise that Jesus says that he's going to build his church on. The gates of hell will not prevail over it, over what? The fact that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's where he's going to found his church on that truth. And that it's going to be the work of God. And he says, the only reason, Peter, that you understand this at the end of verse 17 is that it's because it's revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. Mm. But a little fun note, I want you to underline Simon's last name, Bar-Jonah. I think God has a sense of humor because what sign was Jesus saying the sign that you're going to look for? The sign, sign of, of Jonah. Jonah. And here's Peter. And guess what happens right after that is Jesus, right when Peter says this, explains that he will one day be killed and on the third day be raised. That is the sign of Jonah. That yeah. Peter's not the sign of Jonah. I think it's God having a sense of humor. <laughs> or a literary genius. Yeah, God is a literary genius. I am. And so, but as soon as Jesus says that, Peter goes from awesome to dumb, and actually he's like, rebukes Jesus. Imagine yeah. that. God of heaven, the person, you say, oh, this is the Christ, and he rebukes the him. The son of God. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Because the whole point of that was that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world, but Peter said, no. <laughs> you're supposed to rule. This is not how it's supposed to yeah, go. And, and Jesus is like... Right. No, or as the CIV, Charles International version of Charles H.B. Charles Jr., is saying, that's none of your business. Yeah, well, the, the whole point of that is just simply that, like, no, the whole plan is that I die for the sins of the world. So to get behind me, Satan, is the fact that, like, Satan would love for me not to die on that cross, and you are spreading that kind of message. So get behind me. You're a hindrance to the mission of God. And so we as Christians need to do what Christ said, put, in the thing, put our minds on the things of God and not on the things of man, like Ephesians 4, as Paul explains later. And this is further explained in the next following verses, of t- verses 24 to 20 in Matthew 16, that if we're going to follow 24 Christ— 24 through 28, you mean? Sorry, 24 to 28, thank you. Yeah. That in order for us to follow Christ, we must deny ourselves, come to the end of ourselves, and take up our cross and follow Christ, to die to ourselves— and to find life in Christ, because that is what it means to have our mindset on God. Because we have our mindset on God, we're going to remember the coming judgment of God, meaning the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and his glory to repay each person according to what he has done, judgment. And so it's remembering, this is the things of God. He's going to repay. So don't think of things of man trying to earn a good life now. Remember what God is going to do and how we can be part of that. And so Christ is declared in chapter 16, but Christ is revealed and displayed in Matthew 17. And right off the bat, this is the transfiguration. We see Christ as he was and as he is now on the seat of the right hand of God. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And so when you're picturing Jesus, this is the picture of Jesus you need to have in the resurrected body, Jesus. This is what he really looks like, and this is what he's going to come back as. Mm-hmm. And so then we have a kind of a callback to Matthew 3 at Jesus's baptism. God's voice from heaven you know, utters again saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And hence in the great commission, Jesus says, teach him to obey everything that I have said. 
And so right after the transfiguration, actually during the transfiguration, and Pastor Hayden, if you want to chime in, Jesus reveals who John the Baptist was and how he was Elijah. Which I love that because there in verse 5, God does say, uh, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Well, when else does he say that? At the baptism of Jesus after John the Baptist baptized him. And so that whole picture connects very closely to here in verses 11 through uh, 13 when they saw Elijah and Moses at the transfiguration and it brought back to their mind, isn't Elijah supposed to come before the Messiah comes? And then Jesus clarifies, like, I tell you, Elijah did come. He's already come and you didn't recognize him. Uh, And they did whatever pleased them to John the Baptist. They killed him. They imprisoned him and killed him, cut his head off. Uh, Herod uh, chopped his head off. And it says also, so the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And so that was a proof of just the way that John Baptist suffered. The rulers are going to come and they're going to cause Christ to suffer and die. And at that point, the disciples understood, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. So it's really great how that whole section, including the transfiguration and God, Telling, calling out that, that Jesus was the son of whom he beloved is very connected to the mission uh, and the message of John the Baptist at the beginning of Matthew. Good word right there. All right, well then Matthew 17 uh, concludes the couple interesting things. One, where Jesus heals a boy with a demon. And kind of the main point you need to see is Jesus saying, how long do I need to be with you? Because the disciples tried and tried and tried, but they couldn't do it. So Jesus does it. Then he asks, how long, how long am I to bear with you? And kind of alluding that there's another person to come. The reason why Jesus needed to leave in the first place is because the helper needs to come and be able to help the disciples do the work of ministry. It's God that's doing the work of ministry through us, not just us doing it on ourselves. And then he lands the plane in Matthew 17, talking about again that he's going to die and raise on the third day. Remember, this is the sign of Jonah. Maybe jot that down on the side of your Bible, sign of Jonah. And the disciples were really distressed. Why? Because they're thinking of man versus God. And so they're learning and being discipled and conform, being conformed to not think of this earth, but instead think of what God's plan for earth is in the in any way. Why was that important? Well, it's important because it's God's will. It's a shout out to Matthew 6. God's will be done on earth earth as it is in heaven. And even though the disciples didn't understand it or had a hard time struggling with it, it was important that uh, as Christ was teaching them that these things must happen. And that was part of the discipleship to the disciples to say, you must submit yourself to the will of God. All right. And then it ends with a very odd part where Jesus tells Peter to catch a fish to pay the temple tax. And you're probably sitting there going, why? What's going on? Well, Jesus now segues into, this is who I am, and this is who are my sons. Because the sons won't be taxed. The unbelievers will be taxed. They're going to be the ones that will take the payment. But if we are a child of God, there is no payment to be taken because it's been paid for already. And Christ provided the payment he with, provided with the, payment. the tax. And then what, what does Jesus lead right into? Matthew 18 and 19 reveal who is a child of Christ who are free, that are provided for. And it starts with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus grabs a child and put him in the midst and saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like, like did he children. Gra- did he grab? 
Did well, he, he gra- call, calling him a child? <laughs> okay, or I'm he sorry. Called, okay. He called the child. Okay. He gently called Jesus yeah. in the grab. Okay. <laughs> All right. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Reemphasizing what we learned before in Matthew 12 about the rest. In order for us to have rest, we need to humble ourselves. Mm. Or as we learned, in order to find lives, we need to humble ourselves. And see a great need, just like a child would. Love and, that. Come on. And so, if you need a good picture, think of baby Titus. Mm, my he, he might be alive, but he is fully 100% dependent on his parents to keep him alive. And he lets us know. And that is the <laughs> dependence that in order for us to be saved, we need to have that type of dependence on God or and on Christ specifically to save us. And Jesus says this, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest. Who's the greatest? The person who actually humbles himself onto Christ because Christ is the greatest. And then Jesus, you know, the next few verses reveals his protection, uh, his protective nature over kids, his own children, not over children, but his children saying, if you cause any one of my children, people who follow me to stumble, it's better for you to just th- put a millstone and throw yourself in Canyon Lake. Mm. And then he talks about a warning, say, hey, don't mess with my kids. He's like, hey, woe to the world for temptation of sin. You know, for those who tempt my children, I mean, this is not good for you. Um, well, and, and to think about how serious Christ is about sin and those who cause his children to sin and how much in our world we should not only be fleeing sin, but like, you know, seeing the, the, the tragedy of the fact that people are doing things that are causing Christians to sin. And when we think about the judgment of God, think about God's judgment on those who have ca- are causing Christians to sin and how, what God thinks about those kind of people. It should change the way that we participate in things in our culture because God... Uh, has has a condemnation for these people that is in Scripture that is coming for those people who cause their his children to stumble. And this is how you need to think of this as well. If you're a parent and how much you protect your own children mm. is the way that you need to protect one another and God's church from mm-hmm. people that want to hurt and harm it and tempt it into sin. And then Jesus lands the plane here talking about his great love for his kids, saying if one of them gets lost, he's going to go out and get them. Mm. And so... After that, we shift gears where Jesus talks about now relationship with his kids and how his kids need to learn how to have some conflict resolution. Mm. If you any words on this part in Matthew 18, uh, if we re- recognize someone has hurt, uh, sinned against us, Pastor Hayden? Yeah, I mean, when we look at the one another's and we got to fulfill the one another's, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. I mean, this is great conflict resolution 101, church. If you're dealing with conflict, step one, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't go to other people. Don't go to your pastors. Don't go to the church. Don't go to your friends. Go to that brother. And it's between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not Listen, take one or two others along with you. Then take a couple of you. Let a couple of you know, take them with you. And then deal with the problem with your brother. And you take that charge that it may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then then tell it to the church. Then come to your pastors. Then come to uh, your elders of your church. And let's let's take make this a church issue. Make this, make this a, a corporate issue. And if he listens, if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means you don't have anything to do with him. And that is, that is the role, in, in a lot of ways, of a, of a sense of church discipline in the church, and that's how we would make it work. But how many times do we in our culture, instead of going and telling the, your brother or sister their fault and making it between you and him alone, the first thing you do is you go tell everybody, or you go make drama, or you go create conflict. When the Bible says, if it's important, you need to tell them. And this is how 
Christ's children are supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus has a reflective mirror, or he should say an upside down mirror, of how children are not supposed to act because they're children. We're supposed to forgive one another. That means one child has harmed another. They're supposed to forgive and restore. And then he gives the parable of the unforgiving servant, revealing who is not a child of Christ is because of one that does not forgive, alluding back to Matthew 5, saying if you're not, actually Matthew 6, if you do not forgive others, God has not forgiven you. And so it's, Jesus is really just making this distinction to say, this is who's my child and this is not. My children forgive one another. My not uh, people who are not my children do not forgive one another. They harbor unforgiveness. They harbor unforgiveness, which leads right into Matthew 19. And how does divorce have to do with any of this? Well, because of why they're getting divorced. Matthew 19 is talking about his teaching on divorce. And it's because people just would not forgive one another. And they were divorcing for any reason. Any reason. I mean, uh, apparently some of the accounts are talking about how if a, man, if a wife made a bad meal, the husband would file a certificate of divorce because mm-hmm. he wouldn't forgive. Yeah, their 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 position on divorce was at least one group of uh, of the of the teachers of the rabbis would say, "Oh, you can divorce for any reason," and that's why it actually says here as the Pharisees are coming up. Uh, in verse three, it says, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Like, how how petty can the people of God be to make divorce for any reason at all? Because He was revealing that you are not my people, That's you are right. not my children, because right. you are just unforgiving. And God's people would not do that because what what God's people do is understand in verse six that what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And even the reality after we get there is." That, you know, when, 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 when can divorce happen? Well, divorce should never happen. That's the reality. But we have such a hard hearted people and live in a sinful world that, that Jesus says in verse nine, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The reality is, is like, are there exceptions? Yes. There is such brokenness in our world and such sin in our world that when you see adultery happening, happening, sexual immorality happening in your marriage, like, is, is there, is there a reason to get divorced there? Perhaps there's an allowance. We can at least say that. But the allowance doesn't mean that it's mandated or that it's it's something that, that has to be done. It's that there's an allowance for that because of the great sin that not only the person who's in the sin is dealing with, but even the amount of difficulty for the unforgive for the spouse to forgive the the spouse that wronged them. All of that leaves left an allowance for it. But even though uh, Jesus still said, "Let no man separate what God's joined together," and even though there's an allowance for it in the Bible, doesn't mean that it is a command in the Bible. Now, Jesus is going to continue in chapter 20, going on the point of who are his children and who's not his children. And this is what he ends here. Letting the children come to me and the rich young man are mirrors. There are passages you need to take together. Remembering Matthew 18. Remember, he uh, brought a child in the midst and revealed, this is who my a child is of me. And you must humble yourself. You like must be child. humble. Yep. You must be dependent. Teachable. And so when the children are being brought to him and they're saying, no, the disciples are rebuking, say, go away. Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. Let those who are going to be fully dependent on me come to me. And the children are being an illustration of Christ of not only children who can humble themselves to come to Christ, but even those in their 90s or 100s right. who can still come to but know Christ. But the rich young ruler is a counterexample. It's a counterexample counter because the child is dependent on Christ fully, but this rich young man is dependent on himself. And how to prove that? He asked Jesus, how do I 
uh, earn eternal life. What must I do, right? And then right there is the question right there. But Jesus says, well, you know, what are the commandments? Have you kept them? And he's, I've done all of them perfectly. And Jesus, okay, if you want to be perfect, go and sell whatever you possess and give to the poor. Love your neighbor um, and follow me. Worship me only. And he couldn't do it. Revealing that those who are not children of God are those who are relying on themselves to earn favor with God, earned earn family, familial relationship with Christ, with the true people of God are the ones who humble themselves and depend on God. And that's why the end of chapter 19, as we close up our daily Bible reading spotlight says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The reality is those who see their need for Christ, although they are last here because they realize their utter dependence on Christ, they will indeed be first. And that is our daily Bible reading spotlight. And I hope you're encouraged as I am going through the gospel of Matthew. All right. We have a few announcements. We have our women's fellowship on January 28th at 9 a.m. We encourage you to be there. That's this Saturday. And then the very next day, we have our churchwide prayer night from 5 to 6 p.m. We want to encourage everyone to be there. And let's exercise our fifth distinctive at our church that we have a genuine reliance on prayer. And a reminder that we have a serve team training February 5th from 1 to 3 p.m. here at our church. Everyone who's on a serve team, everyone who serves at our church, we want to encourage you to be there as we learn uh, about how we can serve the Lord this year in 2023. And also look forward to some big uh, things that we expect God to do this year. And then finally, we have our discipleship now for our students from 6th to 12th grade from February 17th to the 19th. Uh, they're gonna have a lot of they're gonna have a blast, they're gonna have a lot of fun, and they're gonna learn a lot about the word of God. And registration is open now online at compasshillcountry.org slash students. We look forward to seeing what God does this week in your life groups, in your lives, and in the ministry here as we continue to reach, teach, and train. Love you guys. We look forward to seeing you guys soon.